to set the stage a little bit for our passage this morning, I think it is helpful just to have a brief review of the person, character of Lot, and how he found himself in this situation. You know, we are introduced to Lot in Genesis chapter 11 as Abraham's nephew, and Lot's father has died, and so Lot is living with his uncle Abraham. And then in Genesis 13, we see Lot and Abraham separate. They have too many possessions, too much livestock for them to live together in the land, and so they move apart. And then in Genesis 14, we see that Lot is captured by foreign armies, and then Abraham comes to the rescue, and he rescues Lot. And then Lot, he eventually returns to Sodom, which is where we found him last week in our passage when angels show up in Sodom to announce the impending judgment coming from the Lord. And the angels, they eventually drag Lot out of Sodom along with his wife and his two daughters, and the city is destroyed behind them. And Lot, he pleads with the angels uh, not to escape to the mountains, and so they allow him to escape to the small city of Zoar. However, during that escape, Lot's wife, she looks back and she reflects on, remembers the city of Sodom, and so she is killed. And this is where we find ourselves at the start of verse 30 in Genesis chapter 19, that Lot, uh, he's in Zoar with his two daughters. So to tackle this passage, we're going to look at three different topics as we work through it. And these three topics are this, the power of the flesh, the progression of our sin, and the sovereignty of the Lord. The power of the flesh, the progression of our sin, and the sovereignty of the Lord. So up first, the power of the flesh. Starting in verse 30, Genesis 19. Lot departed from Zoar and lived in the mountains along with his two daughters because he was afraid to live in Zoar. Instead, he and his two daughters lived in a cave. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. There's a lot going on in this story, in this passage, but there are three clear sins that are described. And we're going to look at each of these sins and see how they impact and are driven by the power of the flesh. The first sin that is described is fear. It's fear. We're going to see this fear both in the life of Lot and in the lives of his daughters. So they are acting out of fear and living out of fear. And with Lot, the scriptures say that he is living in the cave because he is afraid to live in Zoar. We saw that in verse 30. But we know from the passage last week that Lot did not need to fear Zoar being destroyed. During his interaction with the angel in verse 21, it said this, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. That's the city of Zoar. So Lot, he does not need to fear the destruction of the city. He has a promise from God. But he is afraid, and he is acting out of fear. Now, he may have forgotten that promise. Uh, there very well may have been similar sins taking place, sexual sins taking place 
in the city of Zoar as there were in Sodom that may have led Lot to believe that destruction would be coming to that city in the same way that it came on Sodom and Gomorrah despite the promise of God. But regardless of the route, we see that Lot is afraid and so he flees. He flees the city, he takes his two daughters with him and instead he lives in a cave. And so his fear has isolated himself. It has isolated his daughters. He's afraid, and this fear is driving his actions. In addition to Lot, his daughters are afraid. Verse 31, Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So Lot's daughters, they devise this plan out of fear. In the scriptures, they don't describe a situation where Lot's daughters are sexually deviant and that they are just pursuing fleshly fulfillment. We know last week they were described as virgins in that passage. But instead, their motives are fear-based. They're based on fear. They are afraid of prolonged singleness. They are afraid of not having any children. They're afraid of the family line not continuing. They're afraid of what security or prosperity will be provided to them as they get older. And so they create this plan out of fear, taking matters into their own hands. And their motive is not the fear of the Lord. Their motive is not the promises of God, but it is a fear of their circumstances. And fear can be a substantial motivator in our lives. You know, fear can cause us to do things that we would not normally or rationally do. It moves our trust from the Lord to ourselves as we attempt to remedy or alleviate the fear at all costs. And so fear is what has brought Lot and his daughters into the cave, and then fear is what has led his daughters into this dark and twisted plan. There is not trust in the Lord, but rather a persistent fear in their lives. So fear is the first sin that we see. The second is this, drunkenness. Drunkenness, verse 32. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. So they got their father to drink wine that night. And the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. Now, this isn't your glass of Merlot when the kids go to bed. This isn't a beer with dinner. In this passage, Lot gets drunk. We know this as it says, he did not know when she lay down or when she got up. He has consumed alcohol to the point where he doesn't know what he is physically doing. And he doesn't remember it in the morning. And while believers can hold different convictions on the use of alcohol, one thing is abundantly clear from the scriptures, and that is that we are not to get drunk. Believers are not to get drunk. Ephesians 5.18 says this, And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit. Drunkenness is sin. It leads to all kinds of problems. It leads people away from the Lord, not to him. And it quickly brings about the opportunity and really the willingness to engage in other sins that one would not normally commit. I think we can reasonably say that if Lot was completely sober, he would not have had sex with his daughters. 
So drunkenness is described as the second clear sin in our passage. The, the third sin is this, incest. Incest, verse 33. So they got their father to drink wine that night, and the firstborn came and slept with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. That night they again got their father to drink wine and the younger went and slept with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she got up. After Lot's daughters get him drunk, they have sex with him. We know from last week that sexual perversion was prevalent all throughout Sodom. It was a culture completely shaped by fleshly desires and sexual pursuits. And this warped view of sex has fundamentally shaped Lot's daughters. Growing up in Sodom, being constantly exposed to this type of perversion, it has finally reared its ugly head in their lives. They're able to convince themselves and one another that this sin is necessary to continue their father's lineage. It's quite remarkable that in many ways the sexual perversion brought about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and then very soon after, sexual perversion has continued in the lives of its only three survivors. We see from this passage, and we know from our lives and just observing the world around us, that fear and drunkenness and sexual perversion are powerful sins. They're ones that drive us away from the Lord. They drive us towards the flesh, towards the world. I think it's also important to note from this passage just how quickly Lot and his daughters fall after being rescued from Sodom. You know what Lot and his daughters experienced in Sodom was remarkable. It was unbelievable. They welcomed angels. They saw an entire town of men go blind. They are rescued prior to the entire city being destroyed by fire and sulfur. All this has taken place right in front of their eyes. And it would have been conceivable for someone in Lot's position, in the position of his daughters, to pledge a life of faithful ministry to the Lord. It would be on a spiritual high on cloud nine. But very soon after, Lot is giving himself to drunkenness and his daughters are having sex with their father. And this theme, though, one of redeemed people of God who have seen the Lord do amazing things, falling into sin, is nothing new to the scriptures. Not at all. You know, God doesn't gloss over the sinfulness of man. The Bible doesn't paint a picture of perfect people. You know, just a few chapters prior, in Genesis, we have Noah and his family rescued from a catastrophic flood, a worldwide flood. They've witnessed this event with their own eyes, very similar to Lot. And then in the time following the flood, we have Noah giving himself to drunkenness, and we see the sin of his son, Ham. Or we have Abraham, called by God to be a father of many nations, uh, promised descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, from the Lord to Abraham. And then just a few chapters later, his wife, Sarah, instructs him to have sex with her servant to bring about this child. Or in the book of the Exodus, we have the Israelites, slaves in Egypt, the plagues come, and then they walk across the sea on dry land, witnessing miracles. But 
just unfathomable miracles. And then just a short time later, they're worshiping a golden calf. This is the story of the scriptures often. And this can also be the story of you or of me. Eric touched on this, but I think it is worth mentioning again. You know, none of us are above what happened to Lot or happened to Noah or happened to Abraham or what happened to the Israelites. The sin that can seem so grotesque when we read it in the scriptures, that is sin that we are all fully capable of committing in our flesh. And so the the scriptures, they would warn us to be sober-minded about our sin, to keep watch that we might not fall into temptation. But the reality of the passage, it begs the question of how did this happen? How did it happen that Lot ends up having drunken sex with his daughters in a cave? This question takes us to our second topic, which is the progression of our sin. The progression of our sin. In the scriptures, there isn't a clear, perfect, flawless, simple equation that describes how sin progresses. We know that as fallen human beings, sin resides in the deepest parts of our flesh, deep within us, that sin comes out from within us, doesn't come from outside. But from this passage of scripture, and also from the life of Lot leading up to this passage, I think that there are five different stages that we can see in the progression of sin. This is not certainly a complete list, but they're observable in our text. That we can look at Lot's life and the life of his daughters and see how this plays out. And we can also see these, I think, in our own lives. So the first stage that we see in Lot's life is selfishness. Selfishness. You know, the foundation for Lot's sin with his daughters, it began well before the nights that are described in Genesis chapter 19. We see Lot's selfishness first on display in Genesis chapter 13, when he and Abraham separate. It says this, Genesis 13, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me, or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. And if you go to the right, I will go to the left. Lot looked out and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. So up to this point, Abraham has taken care of his nephew Lot ever since Lot's father has passed away. He has provided for him. However, due to the size of their possessions and the fighting between their servants, it has become evident that they need to separate. And so Abraham tells Lot that he can choose where he is going to go. And when given the opportunity, Lot looks out and he desires the land of the valley. He sees that it is well watered. And Lot does not take into consideration Abraham when he makes this decision. At least the scriptures don't describe it that way. He is focused on himself. And so this selfishness is initially what takes Lot to the geographic area of Sodom. It is his selfish desire to have the best land for himself. And is this not true in our own lives? You know, so much of the sin in my life I can trace back to my own selfish desires. 
And they may not immediately produce an outward sinful expression or behavior. I think that these desires, they lay the groundwork for a heart that desires the things of the world rather than the things of God. James chapter 4, it describes this perfectly. It says this in verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Brothers and sisters, we must do battle with the selfishness that resides in our hearts. Because if we don't do battle with it, those selfish desires will lead us to do battle with one another. The worship of ourselves, the self-preservation, the self-exaltation, it is all rooted deep within us. So we see the selfishness in Lot's life. It is what has led him to the area of Sodom, and it is what has begun to take root deep in his heart. The second stage of sin that we see in Lot's life is compromise. Compromise. You know, much of Lot's life, as it is recorded in the scriptures, contain compromises. Instead of living a life set apart for the Lord, Lot compromises with the world. And Eric, again, he touched on this a bit last week, which was really helpful and insightful. So I won't rehash it much, but I think it is important to see just the progression of sin. And one of the main compromises that Lot makes is with the wickedness of Sodom. From Genesis 13, we know that Lot is living in a tent in or near Sodom. It says this in verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we also know from this passage that the men of Sodom were wicked. This wickedness would have been obvious to the Lord, and it certainly would have been obvious to Lot. However, six chapters later, when we get to Genesis 19, when the angels visit, Lot is sitting at the city gate, and he has a house in the city. And so while certainly bothered by the sin of Sodom, Lot compromises both himself and his entire family, really exposing them to years of wickedness taking place in Sodom. And we see him again compromising by offering up his two daughters for the men of the city to have sex with in replacement of the angels. And Eric highlighted that this is not a lesser of two evils option. This is a time to downright reject the evilness and the sin of Sodom. But because of these compromises, both Lot and his daughters have been fully immersed in a city full of sexual immorality and deviancy. And this compromise, unbeknownst to them, is preparing the way for this subsequent fall that is recorded in our passage. You know, the scriptures, they instruct us not to compromise in any areas of sin. We're not to condone or make allowances for those things that are against the character and nature of God. In a letter to the church in Thyatira, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus says this, I know your works, your love and faith and servant, service, patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. That's good. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess 
and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, naturally, I am a non-confrontational person. So because of that, compromise is really an ongoing struggle for me. I'm regularly given just to compromising with the world instead of confronting it. And so there's many ways that I personally can grow in this. And so I am addressing myself alongside of you all, um, just that we need to wholeheartedly pursue Christ. We need not make any allowance for sins in our lives. You know, we're called to keep ourselves unstained from the world, to be in the world but not of the world. We are not to compromise and give in to the sinfulness around us. So compromise, that is the second stage. The next stage of the progression of sin that we see in this passage is justification. Justification. Verse 31 in our passage. Then the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old. There is no man in the land to sleep with us, as is the custom of all the land. Come, let's get our father to drink wine so that we can sleep with him and preserve our father's line. The daughters, they are simply justifying their sin right now. They believe that they are justified to get their dad drunk, to have sex with him because there are no men for them to marry in the land and that they need to keep alive their father's lineage. Now, even if that were true, even if there were truly no single men, even though we know that there are people residing in the city of Zoar, the correct response is not to have sex with your dad to bear a child. It would be to remain single. Not only does the older daughter justify her sin, the next day she follows it up by justifying the sin for her sister to commit. Verse 34. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Look, I slept with my father last night. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight so you can go sleep with him and we can preserve our father's line. This is pure evil. It's also Deeply rooted in their flesh, and it is deeply rooted in our flesh. Justification of sin. If you want to see human beings flourish in their creativity, it is when we are trying to justify our sin. People go to great lengths. They'll come up with just heinous and ridiculous rationales for the sin in their life. And it isn't just little kids. I think it's easy to point the finger at kids justifying their sins. But it's in each one of us. You know, we attempt to justify the sin to ourselves so that we feel better about it. We justify the sins to others when we're trying to get maybe partial permission to commit sin, partial counsel. We attempt to justify the behavior when we are confronted with our sin, claiming that we haven't really sinned at all. 1 John 1, it spells this out for us. It describes the justification of sin. If we say we have no sin, verse 8, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Brothers and sisters, don't justify your sin. Confess them. Confess your sin. So those are the three stages leading up to the sin of Lot and his daughters. But what about the progression after? And in this passage, we see two main stages, two main categories of progression of sin after it is committed. The first one is this, 
the immediate or known consequences. The immediate or known consequences. Verse 36, Genesis 19. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. This is a pretty immediate and a pretty known consequence. Both of Lot's daughters had become pregnant by their father. They have sex with him, and they are immediately impregnated. Now, the scriptures don't explicitly describe the time that followed right after that. But I think that we could pretty easily infer that a couple of weeks or months later, it became evident that both of the daughters were pregnant, and they either told their father this, or eventually he noticed physically that they were pregnant. He also knows that they had been living in a cave alone. So it doesn't take a PhD for Lot to know, despite that he may not remember that he impregnated his daughters. And very often in life, our sin will produce immediate and known consequences. Take, for example, drunk driving. If you get pulled over for drunk driving, you'll be arrested, probably spend the night in jail. Your mugshot will show up on the Polk County website. There will be known financial consequences that come along with lawyer fees. And so there are immediate and known consequences. Or if you yell at a spouse or a child or a roommate, there are immediate and known relational consequences. You can feel it. You can feel the tension immediately in the relationship. It is known by both parties. There's very little time that passes from when the sin is committed to when the consequence is observed, when it's known. However, not all of our sin brings about immediate and known consequences. This is the final stage of the sin in our passage, and it's this, the long-term and unknown consequences. The long-term and unknown consequences. Back to our passage, Genesis 19. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The firstborn gave birth to a son and named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger also gave birth to a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. So Lot, he impregnates both of his daughters, and the first child born was named Moab, and the second child born named Ben-Ami. So first off, the names. Moab means from my father, and Ben-Ami means son of my people. So just the names themselves, I think, are pretty cringeworthy when we read it. But we also know that from Moab comes the nation of the Moabites, from Ben-Ami comes the people of the Ammonites. And so while reading Genesis 19 in isolation, it may not mean much to the reader, just two sons that are born out of sin. But what we end up seeing as we read throughout the Old Testament is that these two sons will become two pagan nations who will be threats to the nation of Israel at various times. The Moabites, they would live along the eastern border, the nation of Israel, and land that was originally allocated to the tribe of Reuben, polytheistic, worshiping many gods. Their national god was Chemosh, and there was no fear of the Lord among them. Maybe most noteworthy among the nation was Balak, the king of the Moabites, who in the book of Numbers, he hires the prophet Balaam to try and curse the nation of Israel. So the Moabites are just an ongoing thorn in the side of the nation of Israel. Similarly, the Ammonites become a nation worshiping false gods, worshiping false idols at odds with the Israelites. And there are a variety of places that we could look to see the impact that these nations would have on the nation of Israel, but we're going to go to 1 Kings chapter 11. 
where it probably describes it best, or at least most condensed. 1 Kings chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. This is hundreds upon hundreds of years after our passage in Genesis 19. So the sins committed hundreds of years prior by Lot and his daughters, they're being felt by the entire nation of Israel through King Solomon as he gives himself to foreign wives who have come from the nation, the Moabites and the Ammonites. He even builds places of worship for these foreign gods. It's a wild and humbling thing to see the impact, the long-term impacts of sins committed by Lot and his daughters. And this very thing can be true in our lives as well. While there is an immediate and known consequence to much of our sin, there are also unknown consequences, ones with implications that will last far beyond our lifetime. I think many of us have experienced, either knowingly or unknowingly, the sins that others have committed years or decades or even generations ago. And sin is not committed in isolation. Even the most secret sin that you think isn't impacting anyone else That sin is producing unknown consequences that will come about at an undetermined point in time. So this progression of sin, the selfishness, the compromises, the justification, and then the immediate and long-term consequences are on display. This is more than just a story of two nights in a cave. It began years before with selfishness and compromises that Lot made. And it was impacted for really thousands of years after. And this is a sobering and quick end to the life of Lot, the story of Lot. We don't hear of him again in Genesis after chapter 19. A relatively prominent figure up to this point in the story is no longer discussed. But all hope is not lost. While this may be the end of the story for Lot, it isn't the end of the story for us that takes us to our final topic, which is the sovereignty of the Lord. The sovereignty of the Lord. And I think that we can take great comfort in knowing that God knew that this sin would take place between Lot and his daughters when he rescued them out of Sodom. He was fully aware that the offspring of Lot would become the nation of the Moabites and the Ammonites, enemies of his chosen people, Israel. But yet he chose to rescue them from the judgment that was coming upon that city. 
despite their sin and despite their shortcomings. And not only was God only aware of the sin and shortcomings of Lot and his daughters, but he actually worked through the sin and the shortcomings of Lot and his daughters. And we'll look at just one of those ways right here. In the book of Ruth, chapter 1, it says this, in verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite, a descendant of the sin between Lot and his daughters hundreds of years prior. And if you read through the book of Ruth, you know that a man named Boaz would eventually marry this Moabite woman, Ruth, and they would have a son named Obed, and then Obed would have a son by the name of Jesse, and then Jesse would have a son by the name of David. King David. So the nation of Moab, birthed out of grotesque sin, but yet represented in the lineage and family tree of our Savior, Jesus Christ, sovereignly orchestrated by the Lord, with redemption fully in his sights when he saved Lot and his daughters out of Sodom, knowing that the vile sin committed by Lot and his daughters in that cave would eventually lead to the birth of Jesus over a thousand years later. And the same sovereignty can be on display in our lives as well. You may not be struggling with fearful, drunken incest, but I know that many of us have sins, myself included, both hidden and public, that make us cringe, they make us hide, they make us shrink back, fully convinced that God cannot work in and through our lives because of it. The sins that make us so ashamed that we want our story to end just like Lot. But that is not the message and the hope of the gospel. The same God that rescued Lot and his daughters, knowing the sin that they would commit after their rescue, is the God that knows the innermost depths of our heart, including our sin. Yet he still loves you. He still loves me. And he has displayed that love for us through the offering of his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty that that sin justly deserves. Romans 5.8 says this, but God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. So when we reflect back on what to do with this passage in our lives, I want to put out three applications. One related to each of the three topics. The first is this, to recognize the power of sin. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a sober view of our flesh. We need to see that the power of fear and drunkenness and sexual perversion, the power that those can have on our life. We need to humbly conclude that we are not too righteous or too religious to fall into sin, even sin with enormous consequences. So first, we must humbly recognize the power of the flesh, 
the power of sin. Second, it is this, to battle the progression of sin. To battle the progression of sin. Is there selfishness in your life right now? You should confess and repent of that sin. Are you making compromises in areas of your life that you know are wrong? You should confess and repent of that sin. Are you justifying your sin to yourself or to others? You should stop and confess and repent of that sin. In many ways, Lot's decision to get drunk and sleep with his daughters was made many years before. And that same can be true in our lives. Selfishness right now is laying a foundation for sins years down the road. Compromises that we are making right now will show themselves weeks or months or years in the future. Justifying small sins is just like digging a hole one shovelful at a time. So I would urge you to do battle with your sin, to do battle with the progression of sin. And lastly, it is this, to rejoice in God's sovereignty over sin. Rejoice in God's sovereignty over sin. We are able to worship a God that not only knows the end from the beginning, but one who can and does orchestrate all things to the good of those who love him. Your sin is not too big for the blood of Christ. Your life is not too far gone for the Lord to use you in mighty ways. But you must humble yourself. You must seek after Christ. You must rejoice in his sovereignty over sin, rejoicing in the victory that we can have over sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.